The security clearance process is complicated. Maybe you find yourself applying for a position with the national security community and then finding yourself with questions you don't know how to answer. Maybe you've held an active security clearance for decades and now find yourself wondering if you need to report that DUI or if your bankruptcy will be flagged under the new continuous vetting program. Security clearance policies are changing and it can be hard to keep up. Whether you're a security clearance applicant, defense industry hiring manager, or government agency, it's okay to have questions. We have the answers. Welcome to Security Clearance Insecurity on Federal News Radio. Brought to you by your hosts, Lindy Kaiser of clearancejobs.com and Sean Bigley. Hi, this is Lindy Kaiser with clearancejobs.com. September marks National Insider Threat Awareness Month. Insider threats are an ongoing issue across the national security community, but fortunately, there are a number of both individuals and companies focused on addressing this big topic of insider risk. So today we're chatting with an expert who has seen security risks from a variety of perspectives, and I always love that, bringing different voices to the table and having conversations on this show. So Dave Commandant, who recently retired as Chief Security Officer at Boeing, founded DS Commandant Risk Management Services. He's also an advisor to SIMS Software, the industry's leading security information management system. Sim Software is a great partner to the security community, help make this podcast possible. So we really appreciate them and we appreciate you, Dave, taking the time to chat with us today about this really important topic. Hey, Lindy, it's a real pleasure to be here with you today. National Insider Threat Awareness Month. I think I got it. I don't even know if I'm allowed to say the acronym. Is it is it NETAM? I, I feel like that makes it worse, so I'm not going to say that. But the topic of insider threat, nothing new to the security community, but it does seem to have taken a clearer shape in both policy and process over the past decade. So how would you kind of rate companies and agencies in creating insider risk programs? Are there key areas of opportunity or missed opportunity that you think that companies should be focusing on right now? Yeah, I think overall, I would give the industry still about a C. And you're correct. There has been a lot more focus, much more attention given to the topic over the last number of years. But I still think companies struggle with the how, how to implement a program, how to implement something that's successful, how to get senior level buy-in at the company. I believe there's still a perception out there that it happens to everybody else but us. And so therefore, we're probably not as far along as we collectively should be. There are some companies out there doing some really great work, and they've got some security leaders and HR leaders who get it and who've worked together along with their IT organizations who really put together first-class programs. But there are a lot of companies out there still that I think are trying to figure it out don't have a clear roadmap, don't really know how to get to the North Star that they're looking to get to. And so I think we still have ways to go in this space. We're not where we need to be collectively across all the industrial sectors. I think there's some that do better than others because they've kind of been legislated into it earlier on, so they're further ahead. But we need to be better in this space for everyone's best interests. On that note, you recently retired from a long career with one of the top defense industry contractors. Probably saw a lot in that career. You went from the front lines to the C-suite. That's definitely been an emerging change where we have security kind of in the C-suite. That seems like a more modern phenomenon. Maybe with the larger companies, it's been more prevalent, but especially with, I mean, a lot of small companies, I think there's still kind of a tension and a fight to get security engaging with senior leadership the way that they should. Do you have you know, any key lessons that you've learned for building and advancing a security program? You know, Certainly speak to doing so at a very large company, but also to the number of small companies that we have. How, how does one even kind of start that journey? 
I think probably the most important thing is you've got to create a seat at the table for yourself. You've got to demystify the security function. There's a tendency at times for security to silo themselves within a company to be unnecessarily secretive when they don't need to be. And I think one of the things that I learned early in my tenure was for me to be successful within the corporation, for my organization to be successful, we really had to be transparent. And we had to talk about the things that we did. We had to show our value proposition to the company. And we had to run our business just like any other business in the company. So just simple things like having your charts look the same as your colleagues when you're in presentations or using some of the same language when you're talking about things like budgets and general administrative things. A lot of CSOs have a tendency to not do that. And so they never get that regular seat at the table. They never have that opportunity to kind of showcase their organization and more importantly, the capabilities that their organization has. And so I think that that's an area where sometimes as a group, we fall down. For those that have figured that out, how to get that seat at the table, then I think the really important thing is keeping that seat at the table. And the way you do that is by showing value to the corporation. So having a good set of value metrics, I was lucky enough to have a set of those that we were able to present on a regular basis where we took a look, maybe one or two metrics from each of our service offerings uh, within our organization. And we'll get that opportunity a couple times a year with the CEO and his leadership team to go over just a few of them. And these are 30-second elevator speeches on, on why we do something, um, the value it's creating, the risk it's reducing, the lives it's saving, whatever the case may be. And those really resonated with senior leadership. And I, and I found those meetings a lot of fun because I would speak for about two minutes and then the leadership team would get very engaged in regards to what they had just heard. What did that mean as a company? What, what could they do differently as a leadership team? And the best part of it was when they would say, what could they do for me? Did I have enough budget? Did I have enough headcount to do what I needed to do? And so, you know, when you have that seat at the table and you have some influence and you have some trust within the organization, generally good things happen. On the opposite end of the spectrum, when there are difficult times at the company and you're forced to go through headcount reductions, and I think every one of us has had to go through that several times in our career. I know I had to go through it multiple times. Having been able to tell your story and having the senior leadership of the company understand what you do and the risks that you're mitigating resulted many, many times in me being required to take less of a reduction, whether it was in dollars or in reduced headcount, than uh, my peers and colleagues in other parts of the organization. Not that their organizations weren't important, they were, but I think we had done a really good job in articulating what we were doing, why we were doing, and the risks associated with not doing it. And those facts resonated in our senior leader's mind, and that helped mitigate some of those real pain points. So I think if you're able to do that, and that's it doesn't matter if you're in a big company, medium size or small company, being able to tell that story, telling your organization story effectively is really important. I used to tell people that not in only was I the chief security officer, but I also looked at myself as the chief marketing officer for our organization. No one else can tell that story except the senior leader. And I think that's a responsibility that all of us that have that position, whether in a big or small company, you need to be able to do that effectively. You're talking my love language here with better communication. And I think that's so critical. I feel like I've had a lot of conversations about that recently with the role of the security officer and the need for visibility in that function. And I think you highlight that perfectly. I think there's 
obviously a right balance of saying, you know, you're protecting secrets, but that doesn't mean that you within the company need to be a secret. And as a security officer, you actually, you can't be, a, you know, even developing an insider threat program. We've talked, you know, a lot about best practices for that and different content over at Clearance Jobs. And you need a security officer with some visibility. So I also love that you highlight, you know, the role of CSO, CMO. You kind of have to market yourself and your function so that the organization knows and understands what your role is, who you are, what you do. You are projecting a lot of information out there and have a key role in conveying that both up and down the chain. And I don't think necessarily writ large, the security function, folks aren't necessarily built with that in their DNA, you know, per se, but I love that you you focus on that. I just want to make one additional comment to that. And, and in full transparency, I was not built that way. And I was lucky enough many years ago to have a communication specialist that was assigned to our organization. And she came to me about a story that she wanted to do. And I listened to her idea and I poo-pooed it. I said, nah, I don't want to do that. And I told her why I didn't want to do it. And she paused for probably about four or five seconds. And she said, you know, you're really good at what you do, but I'm really good at what I do. And I'm a lot better at knowing how to tell people's story and how to communicate all the great things that your organization does. And you need to let me do my job. And so I paused for a bit and I thought about that. And she was right. And so really over the next five years that she supported my organization, she taught me a lot about what was important, how to communicate it effectively, who the right audience was. This was not something that I would say innately came naturally to me. It was a learned skill. I would tell you it was one of the most valuable bits of coaching that I got from anybody during my entire career. And I remember exactly where I was at the time when we had this conversation. It was super beneficial to me over the years. And so I think that for security leaders who are uncomfortable telling their organization stories, a lot of people, and I felt this way, feel like, well, if you just do a good job, your organization's performance will be recognized. That's true to some degree, but there are a lot of things going on in corporations and there are a lot of other organizations doing great work. And sometimes you do have to get up and toot your organization's horn and you have to do it in a way that's meaningful. I'm very thankful to that communication leader. She really helped me in a big blind spot in my leadership style and it made a difference during, I would say, the last half of my tenure as CSO. No, I love that. Boeing is a great example of a company that had has cleared facilities and contracts, but also a huge commercial presence. And we're seeing a ton more interest in this across our space, across the div, the defense industry. You'd have two different groups there, right? You have the commercial sector, employees, employment tier, but then you also have cleared personnel. Do you think in the commercial sector companies, there's an understanding of the insider threat risk that folks who don't even have NISPOM requirements have. And we're seeing kind of, again, DOD, I think with CMMC requirements, doing a lot more saying, hey, it's not just this, you know, opening kind of the aperture of who who is defined in the ecosystem and also what kind of information is through CUI and things like that. As a company who has both, like, are there best practices or approaches or thought processes around keeping your commercial sector business as safe and contained as your cleared sector business? I think the the simple answer is you try to make it that way. You hit the nail on the head when you've got 
two really distinct and different business lines. You've got a commercial business that's doing you know business all over the world, and then you've got a defense sector that in itself, if it was standing alone, would be one of the largest corporations in the United States. And you put those two together, and it's a huge entity. It's also a huge cultural difference. And so I think the way you win in that space on the commercial side is with facts and data. And so when we developed our insider threat program back in 2013 and got executive sponsorship for it, one of the things that we did with frequency is bring forward data that would show across the board that those people that were engaging in anomalous activity, it was a pretty equal spread percentage-wise between employees that were based in the commercial business and in the defense and services business. It never created a situation where one senior leader in the company could look at another and say, well, that's your problem. You know, my people are all squared away. That wasn't the case. As we were able to start developing metrics and capture and refine what was happening within our company, we could clearly see that there was a relatively equal distribution of poor behavior at times between the different business units, services, and to some degree functions. And so that made the discussion a lot easier because that information flowed all the way up to the senior leadership of the company. They all got to see that facts and data, as did our board. And so there was never that kind of us against them mentality. We looked at insider threat as a one Boeing approach. You know, you mentioned the requirements that come along with the NISPOM. That was great because between our overall insider threat program and then the additional requirements that come with having cleared programs, I think we did a really good job being able to kind of keep track of people inside and outside of those secure spaces. There were times where we would see behavior involving a cleared employee on our unclassified network that would cause us to want to spend a little bit more time scrutinizing what they were doing within our classified environment and vice versa. There could be some anomalous activity in the classified environment that would lead us to take a harder look at what was going on on the open network. And there were times where the two connected and we had a problem. There were other times where it was nothing. And I think that's one of the things about a good insider threat program. It's just as important to prove that people are not doing anything wrong as it is to prove that they are. And so if you have a good program and you've got good tool and good investigative capability in your organization, if your program is working well, you'll see behavior that will look unusual. And when you dig deep into it, you'll find out that that individual changed jobs and now they're working on proposals or now they're they're in the same job, but they've gotten a new assignment and they're accessing information or they've been granted access to information to work on a special project on the side. And so you'll figure those things out. And initially, it might look like you've got a problem. But as you go forward and you do the investigation, you'll determine it's completely legitimate. And I think that's one of the signs of a, of a really good, strong program is you've got the capability to, um, to look across the lines, to not be siloed, to get all the right functions involved, to take a look at a person and really make a solid determination. Are they acting inappropriately? Are they doing something that is going to create potential damage to the company? Or are they just doing their job and their job is a bit more unusual than other people's? And that's why they showed up as kind of an anomaly and in some of the uh, triggers that we set. I love that. And I think it ties to my next question, which is talking about kind of your career. I know I've, I've, I did my research before I chatted with you, Dave, and you've talked before about kind of highs and lows and, and learning points in your career. I think that's really important in security because it's not a zero-sum game. Um, things are going to happen. It's a very human-centric field. There's a lot of moving pieces. There's going to be things that happen. It's not kind of 
if you have a security incident, it's when and what scale it is. Can you kind of maybe give some takeaways for companies, even if you're dealing with an incident or you've kind of recovered from an insider threat scenario, what are some takeaways or lessons learned that you would want to convey? I think the most important thing is be okay after an incident, really stepping back and taking the emotion out of whatever the situation was and doing a really hard look at your team, at yourself, at your processes. I think we have a tendency over time to think that we've got things pretty figured out. You you know, you go for a long time and nothing happens or nothing serious happens, and then boom, one day something serious does. And you don't perform necessarily at times the way that you thought you would or that your leadership thinks you should have. If your employees feel that you didn't perform at a level that they had expected of you, it's important at that point to, to take a breath and to step back and say, okay, what, what, first of all, what could I have done differently? Where did I maybe fail or not live up to the leadership expectations that had been set or expected of me? Where did the team fail? Did they fail because they were not resourced properly, because they were not trained properly, because we didn't have the right process or procedure in place? Maybe we didn't have the right people in the right roles. So that really, again, comes back to leadership, whether it's at my level or the level below me. It's about making sure the team can be successful in any situation. And generally, if they weren't, there's a reason for it. We either cut back in an area, we didn't fund it, correctly. We didn't train them properly. Our process was old. It hadn't been tested. I used to to try to, in areas where we felt like we were pretty good, I used to want to kick the tires a little bit. And at the beginning of every year, I would ask a director that was in charge of one of those programs, say, let's, you know, let's get together for several hours and let's sit down with the team and let me ask them questions. There is no right or wrong answer. I just want to get a feel and a sense for, are we doing the things that we say we do? Are we doing them with the frequency that we say we do them? Do we have documentation that shows that we're doing it? And if I didn't feel comfortable after one of those discussions, that would become a focus area. It wasn't a negative on that leader or people. It was the fact that circumstances have changed, the threat dynamics have changed, the risks have changed, and we have it. So we've got to go take a look at this now again, and we're not going to throw the baby out with the bathwater. There's some things in here that, that work really well still, but there's some things that we're missing. Let's go figure out what we need to do differently, what we need to do better. So it was never kind of a criticism. It was always more of a, let's make sure that we are doing what we are saying we were doing and that we're doing it at the level that we should be doing it at. And if we're not, let's go fix it. If we have to do it completely different or if we look at it and we realize, hey, we don't have the right leadership in place here. We have the right team. We just don't have the right leader. We're going to make a change there and make sure that we have the right leadership. So, And this scales at any level, whether you're a big corporation or you're a small shop. I think you can do this. And if you can't do it because you're concerned about objectivity, then bring somebody in, bring a third party in that can do it for you, whether it's a third party within your own company, a peer leader that can come in that you partner with on a regular basis and take a non-advocate look or go, you know, go actually hire somebody and bring them in and have them take a look at a couple of these things, just to give you a sense and peace of mind that that you are uh, where you need to be in these areas. I love that advice. I do think there's a lot of lessons learned anytime you have an incident, and it's uh, many times they're painful lessons, but they are, you know, there are applications there. 
companies have processes and they have security officers so that they have the steps they can take to recover from something that happens and can create a framework for addressing issues and moving forward. Well, I so appreciate your time, Dave, and chatting with us. I think, you know, the insider threat, insider risk topic is not going away. Again, we are seeing more more insight. I feel like the month is kind of flooded with interest and activities and events around it. And so we will be plugged into those. Just appreciate your chatting with us about this important topic. Hey, Lindy, thanks to you and thanks to Sims for giving me the opportunity. I really enjoyed the time. Fantastic. Well, thank you again. Thank you to Sims Software. We do appreciate you know their support and we appreciate the companies that are kind of really investing the time, resources, leaders that are engaging around this topic because you know keeping our classified work, classified programs, and keeping our workforces safe is incredibly important. So thank you so much. Join the Homeland Security Experts Group for the third annual Homeland Security Enterprise Forum, October 9th and 10th at the Omni Shoreham Hotel. HF23 will focus on advancing the enterprise through the adoption of current and emerging technology to make America more secure and prosperous. HSEF is attended by senior government officials, private sector executives, and thought leaders from across the nation. More information and registration are available at www.hsenterpriseforum.org. You're listening to Security Clearance and Security. I am Sean Bigley, and I'm here with Lindy Kaiser of clearancejobs.com. We're talking this segment about a question that I got all the time when I was practicing law, which is, am I a dual citizen? And Lindy, I think this question is kind of a surprise for some people because it seems like you ought to know whether or not you're a dual citizen, right? I mean, I would venture a guess that most of us who aren't or have never held dual citizenship probably think of that question and think, you know, how could you not know? Isn't it just kind of obvious? But there are a lot of cases where it may not be obvious, either because the person had dual citizenship bestowed upon them as a child and they were unaware of it, or because operation of law, uh, meaning that some other country's law automatically gave them citizenship or automatically took it away. And so I guess I'm I'm curious, first of all, to ask you, have you gotten this question from anybody on clearance jobs over the years? And if so, was there a pattern at all in which countries people seem to have the most difficulty figuring out? So we do get it often at clearance jobs, dual citizenship. I think because there's been some policy ambiguity around it, as you know, like the passport issue even, or holding passports, a lot of that foreign influence factor, there's just a lot of confusion, a lot of anxiety around it. So it generates a lot of questions and it shows the melting pot of America, right? I think we do have a lot of folks who maybe their parents served in the military. So they were born overseas. I've seen it come up that way. They're a naturalized citizen and they came to this country and they're not sure if their country of origin citizenship is still in place. So it does generate a lot of questions. I don't see it coming generally from a particular country. I have seen it come up with because we had such a push, right, for folks with foreign language experience for a while. I haven't seen it as much recently, but there were a few years back where I was, was seeing a ton, a ton of questions from Iranian citizens, like Saudi Arabians, people who had come over from other countries and were like, hey, I mean, I don't, you know, what is my citizenship status? <laughs> and how do I find out about that? And I know we're in about that. So a lot of those countries, it's just not like a friendly call to say, hey, Iran, do you still consider me a citizen? Also not a great idea for your security clearance eligibility. I'm sort of glad that they're asking you and clearance jobs those questions, but also a little scared that they are as well. Yeah, it is definitely nerve wracking for some of those folks who are coming from really authoritarian regimes and they're leery about even, you know, visiting 
a website for, you know, for example, the Iranian foreign affairs ministry and thinking, you know, am I going to be tracked somehow? And like, I totally get that anxiety. The problem is that makes it very hard to find answers. And the reality is we, we have something like 200 countries on this planet and every one of them has their own laws and policies about who gets dual citizenship, when it gets taken away, how you get it. And there's a few patterns or a few kind of main ways that this comes about. And, and I think it's important for folks to understand this. So generally speaking, the first way that you can get a foreign citizenship is basically just by being born with it. So there are a lot of countries that say, if you are born to a parent or two parents who are citizens of this country, or if you are born in the case of the United States on our soil, you automatically have citizenship. That's pretty cut and dry except if you don't know who your parents are, which obviously presents a whole other ball of wax. And that, believe it or not, is a scenario that I encountered a couple of times over the years in my law practice. The other way is by operation of law. So you go and you know you have parents who are naturalized uh, as citizens of another country while you are a, a child, for example, a minor. Sometimes the countries say, okay, you automatically get citizenship as a minor. And then the third way typically is by affirmatively applying for it. So you go and you submit the paperwork and you request it. It's not something typically as a minor on your own. So normally when we see cases of people who are affirmatively applying for foreign citizenship, it's as an adult, it's a conscious decision. And in my experience, those are the ones that are a little bit more problematic. I'm not aware offhand uh, of of any cases where somebody has uh, not done that and you know, sort of gotten nailed. Are you aware of any offhand that you can recall? No. And I think this is where the overthinking security clearance applicant comes to mind for me because dual citizenship, I have never seen it become be an issue on a case that I've read or been a part of. Unless, like you said, a person was taking advantage of some benefit of citizenship. So when they're looking at foreign influence and preference, there's usually some other factor. Like, do you have property overseas? Do you have extensive relatives over there? It's going to come down to some other piece of the pie and the dual citizenship piece of it is absolutely a mitigatable one. So people kind of stress out about a piece of paper, or as you said, kind of over like our look, our researching, trying to figure out if they're a dual citizen because of some, you know, again, like I said, family rumor, other factor when the better thing is to show your allegiance to the United States, make that apparent, like you said, include some qualifying information on the SF-86 about what you do know and don't spend a ton of time chasing a rabbit hole around a question that you don't know the answer to. I think that's like, yes, do your research. Yes, fill out the SF-86 correctly. But it's always painful for me to watch somebody trying to provide information that they don't know, because a lot of times that just gets you in trouble. Yeah, I, I agree. And I think that's an important qualifier. I mean, there are a lot of people who fill these things out and do go down the rabbit hole, as you and I both well know from the comments that we get on clearance jobs and the questions. And, and you know, some of them make you chuckle, but uh, you feel for some of these people at the same time because it is a very stress-inducing process. Your career hangs in the balance, your livelihood. So I get it. That's usually going to be the end of the inquiry. But I think, you know, what What I would just caution people against, and I've, I've seen this happen as well, is like, that initial gut reaction of just sort of panic and going like, well, I don't know. So I'm just going to check no and pretend like, you know, nothing is is untoward here. And then five years later, having a change of heart and going, well, now I'm going to check yes, or now I'm going to start trotting out some details. Then it starts to look like, 
you were withholding information. So I'm, I'm a big fan of transparency. I think, you know, just doing it the first time and doing it upfront is probably the way to go. Thank you for listening to this episode of Security Clearance and Security. Please note, the information provided on this program is intended as general information only and should not be construed as legal advice. Consult a security clearance attorney regarding your specific situation. Have a question about the security clearance process? Interested in submitting your own topic? Have a question you'd like us to address on a future episode? Drop us an email, editor at clearancejobs.com. Thank you for tuning in to Security Clearance and Security with your host, Lindy Kaiser of clearancejobs.com and Sean Bigley. Join us next time as we continue to answer all the questions about security clearance careers you have, but we're too afraid to ask your security manager.